Well, this week we have finally reached the the look at chapters 18, 19, and 20 in the book of Isaiah. Now, we're not going to read chapters 18, 19, and 20 because it would take upwards of 20 minutes <laughs> to read all three chapters. But I do want to look at chapter 20 because that's the... The, chapter 20 is actually kind of like the capstone. It's, the, it's the, 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 the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae for these three verses, three chapters. So chapter 20 of Isaiah, and we're reading all six verses of the chapter. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles young and old, with buttocks spared to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be afraid and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on this coast will say, See what has happened to those who relied on those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria? How then can we escape? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, let me give you a little bit of a background. If you look at chapters 18 and 19, depending on what verse, what version of the Bible or translation, you're going to see maybe the word uh, Ethiopia. You're going to see maybe the word Cush. You're going to see the word Egypt. Basically, what you need to understand is that at this time in Isaiah's world, the nation of Egypt is actually being ruled by a person from the land of Cush, which was also known as Ethiopia. And if you remember in the book of Acts, there comes a point where Philip the evangelist meets on the road a man who is reading Isaiah chapter 53 and it says that he's an Ethiopian from the, uh, from the, 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 the court of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Okay? So what is this Ethiopia, this Cush, this Egypt? Again, I don't have the ability on the screen to show you, but if you have any good sense of geography, you'll get this, and if you don't, you can go look it up after the church service. Um, but basically what this is, is Ethiopia, or Cush, is just south of Egypt. Okay? So Egypt, Cush, Ethiopia, it's all on the northern part of the continent of Africa. It's all located along the Nile River. And at this point in time, the pharaoh, the king that's over Egypt is actually from the area of Ethiopia or Cush. And this person, the, the nation of Cush basically came and took over as a result.
result of, of being stronger in their battle skills and stronger in their ability, and they took over Egypt, and then this person is now the king or the pharaoh over Egypt. So, this is going on politically at the same time that the nation of Assyria is wielding its power. And we've been looking for, for the last few months about the fact that the king of Assyria is trying to take over all of the Middle Eastern area, and, some, and the, the Samaritans, the northern Israelites, are struggling and worried about it. The, the, the Philistines are concerned, the Ammonites are concerned, the Edomites are concerned. All of them are worried and concerned about the fact that Assyria is trying to take over the world, the known world to them. So what's going on politically is this guy who is the pharaoh over Egypt, which is actually Egypt and Cush, or Egypt and Ethiopia, this guy is trying to make some political alliances with people who could become like blocks or barricades before him, before their nation, uh, so that when Assyria starts making its assault, there's some barricades in place ahead of the, the Assyrian attempt to take over Egypt. So, the next location just outside of Egypt would be, going along the coast of the Mediterranean, would be the Philistine territory. And one of the five main cities of the Philistine territory is a place called Ashdod. Okay? So if you go to, go to Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1, you'll see what we just read in the year that the supreme commander who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it. Okay? So this gives us the timeline. The timeline is Assyria, in trying to take over the world, finally sets their eyes on the Philistine territory, which is along the Mediterranean coast, and they come to the city of Ashdod, one of the major places of, 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 of population for the Philistines, and they capture it and take over it. And then what they do is they take the, the king who's over Ashdod, and they replace that king with their own. Sargon the, the comes in, uh, the king of Assyria, sends his own leader over Ashdod. Okay? So now the government of Ashdod is being run by one of Sargon's people. If you want to liken this to something in our modern era, Think about what happened in Europe during World War II. Nazi Germany began gobbling up all of the different nation states around them. Czechoslovakia, Poland, France, Austria, uh, Netherlands. And they put in place their own governmental leadership, who were all beholden to Adolf Hitler. Same thing here. Sargon, the king of Assyria, is trying to gobble up all the nations around, taking over the world, and putting their own governmental leaders in place. So Isaiah is saying, this is the time frame that this vision came to me. That time when Sargon finally captured and took over Ashdod and put his own person in place. Now prior to all of that, the king of, of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, was trying to negotiate with Ashdod, the Philistines. He was also trying to negotiate with the northern, uh, northern, northern Israel, which is known as Samaria. He was also trying to negotiate with King Hezekiah, who was the king over the southern nation of, of, of Israel, also known as Judah. Okay? So what he's doing is he's literally looking at these geographical spots that are ahead of him, 
in this path of destruction coming from, from uh, Sargon's route through the Middle East and through the Fertile Crescent area. So he's trying to put these, these, these uh, diplomatic barricades, if you will, saying, you'll be my ally, therefore when the enemy comes, I'll support and defend you. Okay? But his whole mindset was, we'll fight there instead of here, so that there'll be a better chance of our survival. Because I'll have allies fighting for me, and I'll support you while they're attacking you. Okay? Hezekiah says nothing to do with it. Hezekiah says no way. And that's what Isaiah is trying to say, is do not align yourself with Cush. Do not align yourself with Ethiopia. He is working for his own schemes. He is doing it to, to protect himself. And the thing you need to understand, and this is what, what Isaiah chapter 18 and 19 talks about, if we were to go take the time to read it, it says there's going to come a point where Isaiah, where, where Ethiopia, let me see Ethiopia, Cush, Egypt will all be taken away. And if you go down to verse 2 in chapter 20, and then verse 3 in chapter 20 of Isaiah, it says, At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, and he said to him, Take off the sackcloth, sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. So Isaiah did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be afraid and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on this coast, the coast is the Philistine area, will say, see what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria? How then can we escape? In other words, Isaiah's prophecy is, look at me walking around naked. I'm showing you, through the prophetic act of walking around naked and barefoot, for three years, that this is what's going to happen to those Egyptians who you think are so powerful and are going to provide protection against Assyria. And the bottom line, if you go into chapter 19 and read it, it eventually says that the Egyptians and the Assyrians are eventually going to all come to Israel to bless God and to worship God. And so the whole focus is, guys, keep your eyes on God, not anybody around you. Don't look at the political climate. Don't think how horrible everything is and how there's no hope. Just keep your eyes focused on God and trust in God. And when you do, you will see in the end that everyone, and this is again talking back at the, at the end of time, and, and the millennial rule of Christ, everyone is going to come and worship the same God as you. So keep your eyes focused on God. Now, as I was studying this, I was looking specifically at verses 2 and 3. Because I remember this passage when I was in Bible college. The professor that taught us that night, he said, they walked around buttocks bare. And I was like, not really. Yep, buttocks bare. What? Really naked for three years? Please. Well, I wanted to see what scholars had to say. Now, Dr. King, who was my professor in Bible college, is known as one of the Old Testament scholars in the Church of the Nazarene. I mean, he's, he's one of the high guys, theologian-wise, 
in our denomination. But I wanted to see what others had to say about it. And what I found out was the word in Hebrew that is um, naked, in, as, as in this chapter, the word in Hebrew that is naked is the word, let me bring it up because I can't ever say it, remember it. Aram, A-R-O-M, Aram, Aram. And the problem with this word, Aram, is that it can mean naked. It can also mean partially naked. So now the word doesn't help me because it can mean either fully naked or partly naked. So I have to look at context. Well, context doesn't tell me a whole lot because some scholars in trying to interpret this say, well, if he was truly fully naked, why would they have to say that he was barefoot? Because if he was fully naked, doesn't that mean he's not wearing shoes? So they say he's partially naked, Aram, and he's also not wearing shoes. And others are like, oh, that's stupid. That is just stupid. He was naked. And I'm like, ah! And it, what does it really matter? I don't know. But this is what I did do when I did a word study on the word Aram in the Old Testament. The very first time this word Aram appears in the Old Testament is in the Garden of Eden. And the man and his wife were both Aram, and they were not ashamed. Now, was Adam and Eve wearing any shoes? Or were they wearing loincloths? I don't think so, because it says after they sinned, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together as loincloths to cover their nakedness. Okay? So, in the very first use of this word Aram, they were fully buck naked, buttocks bared, but they weren't ashamed. The next time we see this word used, Samuel, the king of Israel, has joined the prophets. And it says, he stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel, laying Aram all that day and all that night. And therefore the saying came, is Saul also among the prophets? So there is this, there's, but this particular Aram, scholars believe, that the prophets only took off their outer garments, but wore loincloths. So now I've got Adam and Eve fully buck naked, and I've got um, Samuel, excuse me, Saul, King Saul, partially naked, using the same word. The next time you see Aram comes up in the book of Job, where he says, Aram, I came from my mother's womb, and Aram, I shall return. Well, that tells me buck naked. There's just no way that they came out wearing loincloths from their mother's womb. Ecclesiastes. And he came from his mother's womb, and he shall go again, Aram, as he came. It's another time of, of being born. And then the next time it shows up is Isaiah chapter 20. He walked Aram and barefoot for three years. And then it goes into Hosea and Amos, and then finally Micah. And Micah says, For this I will lament and wail. 
I will go stripped and arum, and I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. And again, Micah, one of the prophets, walked around buttocks spared. Now, so the answer is, I don't know. But I, I was talking about this Wednesday night with one of our people, and they said, well, he wasn't wearing clothes. I mean, he was wearing clothes. Of course he was wearing clothes. He wouldn't walk around naked for three years. And I said, why wouldn't he? Well, that's just ridiculous. Mm, okay, stop, stop. That's just ridiculous is not a theological answer. Okay? What that says is that you wouldn't walk around naked for three years. Well, yeah, that's what it says. Why would God not ask somebody to walk around naked for three years? And me, naked? Well, I don't know. Neither do I. And I don't have an answer other than what's written on the page. So you can believe that he walked around partially naked. You can believe that he walked around fully naked. You can know by looking at verse 4 that it says this is an example to show how the king of Assyria is going to lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with their buttocks bared. So if nothing else, Isaiah had to walk around with his butt showing for three years. It, does it really matter? I don't know. I tell you this only because there's ambiguity here and we can't figure it out. There's nothing definitive. But the, the reality is God asked his prophet to do something bizarre. Because God had a reason for that bizarre behavior to be displayed to the people of Israel. And Isaiah did not have to know why. Isaiah simply had to do as he was told. Why? Because he was a servant of the Most High God. It was not his to question. It was his to do. God owes no one an explanation for God's demands. God simply says, are you my servant? Yes, then do this. Why? Do this. But I don't understand. Do this. But God, do this. But, okay, obviously you're not my servant. I'm going to find somebody else. Think about that. It's very easy for me to say, He's my Savior. Why? Because that means I'm clean before God, and I'm righteous, and I've got an adoption certificate, and I'm going to heaven. But in our theology, we also say that as we progress in this relationship with God, there comes a point in every Christian's life where they recognize that it's more than just being clean and righteous before God through the blood of Jesus, but that indeed God calls us to live holy lives. Holiness is basically living like Jesus. And how do we get holy? Not through any strength of our own, not through any actions of our own. It is a, it is a thing that we receive 
by faith. It is a work of God in our lives that makes us holy. And how does this thing about this holiness, this entire sanctification come about? It comes to the point when we as Christians say, you know what, God? I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I'm tired of trying to plan out my life. I want you to be in charge. I literally, God, consecrate everything about my life to you. Everything is yours. My past, my present, my future. Anything you ask of me, the answer is yes. Because now, not only are you my Savior, I believe by faith that you are my Lord, and I am going to walk in that from this day forward. And then God, miraculously through His mysterious power, sanctifies us wholly, and we now have Jesus as our Lord, not just our Savior. And that's the problem, folks, because so often we righteous, holy Christians question when God asks us to do something that we don't understand. And that's never been part, never been part of the deal. When you walk into relationship with God with your arms open and your eyes open and your heart open, there's nothing in that covenantal relationship that says God owes you an explanation. God has drawn you, wooed you, brought you into relationship with God through the blood of Christ. And through that walking into Him on a daily basis, you come to realize the need for holiness and the need for Him to be Lord. And so you submit and say, you are Lord. And so He, by His strength and His power, by His grace, sanctifies you. And now you are walking in Christ-likeness and holiness. And you continue on until the day He calls you home. But the day-by-day-by-day by day by day walking in holiness is a submitted and trusting walk. And the answer is always yes, not why. Isaiah did not question why. Isaiah probably went, oh please. Oh. Are you kidding me? Am I really hearing this right? Now, none of those are inappropriate questions. Oh God, because what did Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh God, really? Please, is there any other way? He didn't say why. He said, is there any other way? If so, can we go that route? I can also show you in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel, because see, this is the only time in all of Isaiah that God asks Isaiah to do something bizarre. Poor Ezekiel, oh my word. God had him doing crazy things all the time. And one of the times, God said to Ezekiel, I want you to lay on your side for a full year, and I want you to make your food over a fire made with human excrement. And Ezekiel went, oh God, please, I have never defiled myself in my entire life. Can I do it over cow dung, please? And God went, okay, you can do it over cow dung. Okay? Because that was acceptable in their culture where human excrement would have defiled him using human excrement as food. But Isaiah, Ezekiel's role was to lay on his side for 365 days and prepare his food over a, a fire made with poop. And there was a reason for it. God had a purpose in it. And we're not looking at Ezekiel right now. You can read that for yourself later. But God had a reason for it. And it's the same way now. God had a reason for calling Isaiah to walk around naked for three years. Whether it was fully naked or partially naked, his butt was hanging out. That's all we need to really understand. And he did it. And he did it out of obedience. And he didn't ask for any explanations why. 
I wanted to share one last thing before I close, and that's this. And I've shared this with you before, so it's an old story. You can go back to sleep, and this it's going to be on the recording. But that's what the deal is: is when God was calling me to go to the Bible college, I was working on a Bible study that I was preparing for the next Sunday, and I was at lunch, and I was sitting there, and God said, "I want you to go to Bible college." And I spent an hour arguing with him. I want, he wants me to go to Bible college. I don't want to go. Yes, I want you to go. I don't want to go. It wasn't a question of why. It was I don't want to go. So now it was a matter of my will. Am I willing to do what you told me to do? Yes, finally. And I said to God, as I was driving back to work that day, I'm willing to go, but you're going to have to convince my wife. Because we're a team. Now, I fully expected that when I got home, my wife would be in the kitchen with an apron preparing some meal... And I would come in and I would say, Honey, God has spoken to me today and he called us to go to Bible college. And I fully expected my wife to turn around from what she was doing and have tears glistening in her eyes and say, God has been saying the same thing to me for three weeks and I'm just waiting for you to hear from him. Let's go! That's what I fully expected as I walked in the door that evening. I walked in the door to our house. My wife was in the kitchen wearing an apron, preparing a meal. And I said, honey, God's calling us to go to Bible college. And she turned around and went, absolutely not. And the floor went out underneath for me. Because up to that point in my life, whenever I needed to do something as a family... I would trust that my wife and I would be on the same page so that that way I knew we were hearing from God. Because if she's agreeing with me, then of course we're hearing from God. And now God puts me in a situation where I'm the spiritual leader in my house and God has laid a call on us, our house, not just me, our house. And I have to now lead my family in a path that my wife is not willing to go. It literally took three to three and a half months for my wife to finally come to grips and say, yes, I believe this is what God has called for us. And so then we we continued. Those were the most miserable three and a half months of my life. Because I wasn't going to force her to do something she didn't want to do, but at the same time, I knew that this was what God was calling us to do. And I was conflicted because, God, I don't understand. If you're calling me but not her, this doesn't make sense. Did I choose the wrong woman? No, of course I didn't choose the wrong woman. I don't know what's going on. But what I learned through all of that, as I have reflected in the, over, over looking back, is I had put my trust in my wife's ability to hear God. My trust wasn't in Jesus, and my trust certainly wasn't in my ability to hear God. I always use Renee as the litmus test. If this is what God is saying to me, ask Renee. If she says yes, go. And God said, that will never fly when you enter the pastorate, son. You can't always call your wife to know what the right thing to do is when you're in the pastorate, son. You've got to be able to stand on your own knowing when you hear from me, you do. When I ask, you go. If I say jump, you ask how high, not what, when, or why. Okay. Now fast forward five years. We've been in Bible college five years. 
My best friend from Bible college interviews at this really bizarre, crazy place way up in the north called Two Rivers, Alaska. And he calls me the next morning and says, that nah, wasn't a good match for us. We're just not the right people. But we really thought maybe you and Renee would be a good match. No, <laughs> no, I'm not going to Alaska, please. Well, the story continues and I end up getting a, a phone interview scheduled. And the phone interview was a Wednesday night, I think. And I went to work that day, and Renee was not convinced that we were supposed to be coming to Alaska. She did not have clearance in her heart. And I went to work that day, and on my lunch hour, I was fasting, and I went to my lunch hour, I went to the prayer chapel on, on campus there where I worked, and I got on my face before God, I said, God, I'm, I don't care if I'm late back to work, I'm not coming out of this room until I know that I know that I know that I know what your heart is for me about Two Rivers. Am I truly called to be the pastor? I don't want to go through the phone interview and be influenced by anything. I want to know from you and you alone. And I stayed in that room praying and fasting until I heard from God. And God used scripture and God confirmed in my heart that I was to be the pastor of this congregation. Then I went home. We had dinner. Then we had the phone interview about 9 o'clock at night. And then... After the phone interview, Renee said to me, so what do you think? I said, honey, I am fully convinced that this is what God wants for us. And she said, but I am not. I said, that's okay, I'm not threatened by that. When you are ready, we'll go. But it isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because I already know this is what God has for us. Well, we agreed to come up here on a face-to-face I mean, -face interview and by the end of the face-to-face -face interview, which was about two weeks or so after the phone interview, Renee finally on a Sunday afternoon said, or Sunday evening, sitting right about where you're at, said, I really believe that this is what God has for us. So at, finally at that point we came together. And what God showed me as I reflected on all of that that I just shared with you was, Bob, before you went to Bible college, you trusted that your wife would hear clearly from me. Now, you've grown enough in your walk with me where you, know, you trusted me to lead you and you listened to me and me alone. And when your wife wasn't on the same page, it wasn't something that destroyed you. It wasn't something that threw you for a loop. It wasn't something that rocked your world to the point where you couldn't deal with it. You just stood firm in your faith, knowing that I had called you and trusting that I was working in your heart's life in your wife's heart, and when she was on the same page with you, then you guys could go. And all of that was perfectly okay with me, Bob. Because I saw growth in you, I saw strength in you, I saw the ability for you to be a good pastor, and to be a good Christian, and to be a good spiritual leader in your home, and all of that is good. It was a hard lesson to learn. It took me more than five years to learn that lesson. But I walk in strength today because I learned how to trust God and not things or people or coincidences or talismans. I learned to discern the voice of God and to follow it when I was fully convinced that it was God speaking. And that's what I see here in Isaiah chapter 20. This is a man who was fully convinced that he knew the voice of God. 
And when God spoke, it didn't matter how bizarre the request, the answer was, yes, Lord, let's go. And as a result, the kingdom of God was advanced. The purposes of God were accomplished. And Isaiah got a well done at the end. And that's what I want us to take away from this morning. Yes. And I would share too from my viewpoint that God was very patient. It was important that God, it was great that God allowed us to not have to be fully tell. He showed me because I need to know for myself, not just to, to say okay, he said, but it, it was very beneficial for me to be able to, to say, God has shown me because there were points that came in after those, those decisions that I think it, 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 was, it would have been very different had I not been able to say, I know that I know that I know that God has What I want you to walk away with this morning is I want you to walk in a holy trust. All of you are at various different levels of experience and maturity in your growth with the, with the Lord. Some of you, it's really fresh and new. Some of you, you've known the Lord for a number of years. Some of you walked with God for the better part of your life. And I really hesitated when I was reading this and studying this and praying about what to say. Because I was like, well, God, this is kind of like ABC's 1, 2, 3 stuff. And he said, no, it's important that your people hear it. And if it doesn't matter which one it is that's hearing it, they all need to hear it. And so I give to you a challenge. Spend time this week listening, asking God what it is He wants from you. And then without question, once you're fully convinced that it's indeed God speaking to you, walk in that. You may not ever get an answer as to why, but that's okay. Because the whole exercise is about learning to clearly hear his voice and being obedient to that call, that voice. Whether you ever know the answer in the future. It doesn't matter why. What matters is the yes. If he's indeed your Lord, you don't have a choice. If you can't say yes, he's not your Lord and you've got some work to do in that area. Let's pray.